send out heat-seeking heat apparatus so that they can make their maps from the satellites, they can make maps that will tell them how high the mountains are, and it has this, they're able to detect three-dimensional aspects. Because when you look at mountains, when you're really looking at the mountains, there are three-dimensional features. If you take a photo of it, you can see some of the three-dimensional features, but those features aren't really in the photo. You've taken a three-dimensional object, and now you're representing it in two-dimensional form. With the Shroud of Turin, it's not so. It, uh, it carries with it uh, a, a three-dimensional imagery, uh, which you won't get in a painting and you won't get in something else. But basically, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more when we talk about how the image on the shroud was possibly formed. Uh, also, again, we mentioned the distended abdomen. This is a victim of asphyxiation, which is uh, the, the reason why people die on the cross. They can no longer breathe. Um, there is no sign of paint, dye, powder, or any other substance that could have caused the image. Now, let me say this. I'm not saying there was no sign of paint on the cloth. Saying there, that 1978, the scientists proved that there's no sign of paint or any other substance that could have caused the image. In other words, there were little particles of paint, which you would expect throughout the centuries, people would look at the shroud and try to paint a picture of it. Okay, so you're going to find evidence of that, but there's not enough paint to have caused the image. And that's the key factor there. Um, nowhere near enough, and if there was, if it was painted, it would not be superficial. It would have soaked through. Also, not only is it superficial and three-dimensional, which you would not find with a painting, it's also non-directional. When you paint, you paint in one direction or another, and we can find your, where your strokes went by examining it under a microscope. Not so with the shroud. It wasn't done in one direction or another. It just came on. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, also, even with modern scientific technology, it was proven in 1978 that scientists have been unable to reproduce the image with all its detail. Um, Basically, it appears like it was caused by either a heat or light scorch. Something scorched the cloth enough to leave all that detail. Problem is, whenever we bombard cloth with either heat or light, um, the problem is, if we try to get as much detail as is on the shroud, we burn right through the cloth. So then we cut back the amount of heat or light and uh, what happens is uh, it doesn't leave enough detail. So somehow, before modern science, this cloth was bombarded with enough heat and enough light to leave all that detail, but it had to be done in such a small fraction of a second that it wasn't enough to burn through the cloth. Okay? So basically, for some reason, and there's no natural explanation for it, for some reason, the corpse, of the corpse, the body of a dead man, was somehow emanated with either light or heat to such a degree and in the twinkling of an eye that it was able to leave all this three-dimensional detail on the cloth and yet not burn through it. Now let me say something. Modern science does not know what happens to a human body, a co human corpse, when life re-enters it. Okay? So what I'm saying here, it is possible that God 
may have decided to leave modern man with evidence, empirical evidence, of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And I don't, Josh McDowell is a great brother in the Lord, but he needs to write more than two pages on it if he wants to throw this out, because there are a lot of unanswered questions here. Okay? Um, hey, if, God, if God left us evidence, let's not take it lightly. And let's treat it as evidence. And uh, this is some possible evidence, and we should look further into it. Uh, also, by the way, um, Max Fry, an expert on, on pollen, found pollen, little particles of pollen on, there, on the shroud that are traced back to Turkey and Israel. And if the shroud, we know where the shroud has been since the 14th century. And that is basically just Western Europe, okay? Uh, the shroud was never since the 14th century. If the carbon-14 dating is correct that, that, that uh, came out a few years ago, the shroud then was never in Turkey and Israel, yet there's ample evidence of pollen from Turkey and Israel, which means the shroud existed earlier than the 14th century and at sometimes has spent time in Turkey and at another time in Israel. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit later when we talk about the possible history of the shroud. By the way, the weave and the type of the cloth is consistent uh, with first century Palestine and the coins that are over the eyes haven't been identified, even the letters on the coins on the right eye, the coins covering the eyes have been identified as coins from uh, Pilate's reign, uh, between, I think it's between 29 and 32 A.D., these particular coins were minted. Now, even, even uh, one of the words was spelt wrong. And even uh, uh, McCone, the atheist, jumped all over that. But now we found some more coins from Pilate's reign with the same misspelling in them. So uh, um, it, just, it just boggles the mind how, uh, how a forger could do something like this. Uh, it seems to be uh, authentic. Okay, so those are some of the details found on the shroud. Now what we want to talk about is the history of the shroud. I'm going to real briefly give you the known history of the shroud. Everybody agrees with the known history of the shroud, okay? Known history of the shroud begins in 1354 A.D. It was owned uh, by a uh, wealthy gentleman named Geoffrey de Charnay uh, from France. He had close ties to the Knights Templar, a secret religious order started by former crusaders. These guys like to do two things. They like to collect religious relics, and uh, they like to kill people who didn't agree with their religious views. Um, but since 1354, the Shroud has only been in France, Italy, Western Europe. It has spent no time in you know, Turkey or, or Palestine, but now we find the evidence from the pollen that it had to be there probably then before that time. Uh, Geoffrey de Charnay's granddaughter, Margaret de Charnay, uh, traded the shroud for two castles in 1452 A.D. Some people thought this uh, shroud was very valuable. Okay? Uh, now, if it was just painted, you know, just a hundred years earlier, it would make you wonder why it was so valuable. Uh, but by the way, when you look at the shroud itself, and you look at paintings that are valuable, uh, it doesn't seem like it would be valuable just because it's a, a painting. Now, if people believed it was something other than a painting, such as the burial cloth of Christ, uh, 
she got ripped off for you know two two castles. Uh, uh, the new owner, the one who traded it for it, was uh, a lady named Anna de uh, Lusignano. She was the wife of the Duke of Savoy, Italy, and she began to at that point keep it in a silver casket. In 1532, a fire caused the silver to burn the edges of the shroud. When you look at the on the orange page, those burns there, and then over on the purple page, it'll point them out, holes from the fire, and that type of thing, and uh, um, scorches from the 1532 fire. Okay. By the way, that's when they started to think about a lighter heat scorch. When they examined it, the chemical makeup of those, uh, of the fire marks, uh, was very similar with the image on the shroud. Okay, um, and so that's when they started thinking along those lines. Anyway, in uh, 1578, the shroud was moved to Turin, Italy. It was placed in a chapel in uh, Garini, Italy, in 1694. It was photographed in 1898 by Secondo Pia. Uh, it was hidden for the sake of protection during World Wars I and II. 1946, the Shroud was returned to Turin, Italy. 1978 was the Shroud of Turin research project where they came up with a lot of this. It was the, the, it was the, the one time that the, the Shroud was examined more than any other time in its history uh, by modern scientists. Uh, now, from 1452 to 1983, the Shroud was owned by the House of Savoy, but King Umberto II of Savoy left it in his will to Pope John Paul II, and Pope John Paul II, the Catholic Church now owns it since 1983. But then in 1988, and we're going to touch on this a little, little bit, the shroud uh, was carbon-14 dated, supposedly in three separate tests of the 14th century. Now, if that dating is correct, the game is over. By the way, Dr. Gary Habermas, um, one of the world's foremost experts on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ from the dead, my old professor at Liberty University, he wrote two books on the Shroud, one before the carbon-14 dating, and then one after it to respond to it. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now, the question comes up, well, if the Shroud of Turin goes all the way back to the time of Christ, how come you never hear anything about it until 1354 A.D.? Um, let me say this, both from ancient sermons and from the burn marks on the cloth, we can tell that the shroud spent a lot of time being folded in fours so that only the face would be exposed. Okay? We do have ancient documentation uh, talking about images of Christ's face. Okay? throughout history and uh, there were copies made of it but the original authentic one may have been the Shroud of Turin and before 1354 AD we even have sermons saying that yeah oh yeah this face image of Christ the Mandelion was what they called it the Mandelion I don't know if they pronounced it the Mandelion or the Mandelion whatever the case that the uh, Knights Templar had okay a face cloth of Christ uh, there were message sermons that were given, correspondence letters, that they admitted it was folded in fours, and that if you opened it up, it contained the whole body of Christ. Um, but here's a possible 
ancient history before 1354 A.D. Uh, Eusebius, the ancient church historian, wrote in 325 A.D., talks about King Ag Abgar V of Edessa, which is now Turkey. It's a key place. Pollen showed up on the shroud, on the cloth, from Turkey. Uh, when he was ill, supposedly he sent for Jesus, but Jesus did not go. Okay? Uh, now, other ancient writers uh, added to what uh, Eusebius stated, and they claimed that they knew some extra information, that after the ascension of Christ, uh, Thaddeus, also known as Jude, did visit Abgar in response uh, to this letter where he tried to have Jesus come out. So after the ascension, Thaddeus visited him, and that supposedly Thaddeus brought with him an image of Jesus' face to show him as evidence of Christ's miraculous life. And this was called, that the apostle Jesus Thaddeus that brought this, this was called, in, in ancient writings it's referred to as... Um, Archera Poitas, Archera Poitas, which translated in English means not made with human hands. Okay? It's referred to as the image of Edessa nowadays, okay? Um, Ian Wilson, his research, his historical research, led him to the conclusion that the image of Edessa is the Shroud of Turin folded in fours. Okay? Well, let's follow the history of this image of Edessa. Well, Ian Wilson traced it through history and found that this, the, the, this uh, shroud with mysterious, uh, this mysterious cloth with the face of Christ on it, uh, he also identified it as the Mandaleon, okay? Uh, basically, the face of Christ, the, the image on, of, of Christ's faith on a cloth that the Knights Templar had, okay? This connects them with that guy... Uh, Charnay from the 14th century, by the way. Uh, but anyway, there was persecution of Christians in Edessa, and the shroud disappeared for about 500 years. Uh, and then the, the shroud was found sealed in a wall in Edessa uh, almost 500 years later. So persecution started, uh, it was hidden, and 500 years later, uh, it was found. Uh, in 944 A.D., again, almost 500 years later, uh, the shroud was surrendered to superior forces from Constantinople, so, uh, they, which is, again, from, from uh, uh, another area in Turkey. Uh, then the Knights Templar, again, that secret religious order made up of former crusaders, stole the, the uh, Mandalion from Turkey and brought it to France in 1204 A.D. and delivered it to the Charnay family. So the, the, the last you hear of the, the Mandaleon in history, and then the first you hear of the Shroud, 250 years later, it's the, it, the people who own it have the same last names. They're in the same uh, family name, a wealthy family. Um, and so there's a, a lot of evidence uh, backing this possible history of the Shroud. By the way, um, as a Catholic, I once saw a play of Veronica's Veil. You know, supposedly a lady named Veronica wiped the face of Jesus when he was uh, carrying his cross, and his image came out on the cloth. And everybody agrees that's a legend. There's no, no truth to it. 
However, behind every legend, there usually is some element of truth, some story that got mixed up as it was spread by word of mouth. What Dr. Gary Habermas points out is that Veronica comes from two Greek words. One of the Greek words means veneration, a form of, of worship or respect, and uh, icon is the other half of the name Veronica, and that means uh, a religious artifact, a religious object. And so Veronica means venerated religious object, okay? And so people, they might have named it Veronica, a venerated religious object, and then later on uh, came up with a story, invented a story about a lady. But that also uh, might have come from the knowledge of the, uh, the face cloth of Christ. Um, when you look at literature, the miraculous image of Christ's face is mentioned in the apocryphal gospels written in the second century AD. They're not part of the Bible. They don't belong in the Bible and stuff, but they do state that there's a miraculous image of Christ's face that, face that was well known at that time. That's the second century AD. It was mentioned by a bishop, uh, Arculfo of France, in the fourth century AD in uh, one of his writings. Sixth century document states that it was doubled in four, so only the face was being shown, yet there was more than just the face to it. Uh, the 8th century sermon of Pope Stephen III states that the Mandalion bore uh, the image of Christ's face and the entire body. So the Knights Templar, this cloth of Christ's face that they had, it was folded, and when you unfolded, it, it had the entire body. Uh, and that predates the 14th century by several hundred years. Um, 1130 A.D., a monk also confirmed that the Mandalion showed Christ's entire body. Uh, 12th century Vatican document confirmed the same. Uh, and from the 11th century on, you find full length... You know, those who hold it a carbon-14 dating say that it wasn't around the 11th century. Well, from the 11th century on, you find many representations of Christ, paintings of Christ, with a full length from head to head just like the shroud. Um, why are they doing that? Um, probably because they were looking at the shroud. But all these accounts agree the Mandalion of the Knights Templar bore the image of Christ's entire body. Uh, they stated that it was not a painting, and they stated that it had a miraculous origin. Okay? Uh, Paul Vignon, uh, a researcher, he showed similarities, by the way, between the image on the shroud and ancient Christian art. Take a look at the, uh, the last page, the pink page. There's the, the face of Christ on the shroud, okay? When you look at the picture next to it, uh, by the way, the, the three pictures on this page all date to before uh, the 14th century, okay? Now, if you notice in this picture of Christ, that's a pretty rough-looking Christ. A lot tougher than Hollywood producers pick. You know, when they want somebody to play Christ, they usually get a real mellow, skinny, wimpy guy. Well, this looks like a rough Christ. Pretty strong Christ, like the one in the shroud. Also, if you look between the eyes, there's kind of like a V, and then a straight line going across that V, on the top of that V. Um, a close examination of the shroud shows that exact same phenomenon. 
Uh, you also see that V between the eyes and that line going through it on the, the painting below, um, which uh, basically uh, is a painting of the Mandalion. Okay? And by the way, nobody knows where this Mandalion is. If it's not the shroud, nobody knows where it is. It's my contention that the Mandalion is the shroud. Okay? But this was a painting that was done, that we know that was done uh, from the Mandalion, uh, as is the, the picture in the next frame. And it's real hard to see. But you, when you look at all of them, when you look at the foreheads, the eyes, they make big eyes probably because they weren't aware that those are coins over the eyes of Christ. Okay? Um, but whatever the case, it looks like they were looking at the shroud. Now, these are, these are before the 14th century, yet they all probably date between like 1100 and, and 1300. When you go to the yellow page, the first two, we looked at these pictures earlier, they also look like they were drawn directly from the Shroud of Turin, even to the point where the beard is torn to where it's a three-pronged beard. There's blood stains. You've got the wide forehead again, probably not realizing that it's a head cloth that is pulling the hair back, okay? Uh, so once again, and, and again too, if you're going to try to draw a picture of Christ and you look at the shroud image, the head is the clearest thing. Everything else is so blurred, unless you stand back 50 feet, you can't even make it out. Okay? So uh, Paul Vignon re did, did some research and showed uh, similarities um, uh, between the image on the shroud and ancient Christian art. In fact, he argued that the eastern portion of the church, the Byzantine area, which Turkey was on that side, that uh, you have that V between the eyes, which is on the shroud, in over 80% of ancient Byzantine depictions of Christ. You also have almost no neck at all, which the neck is invisible on the shroud. Uh, and you have the, the forked beard looking very similar to the one on the shroud. And the list goes on and on. And in fact, I think he found up to 70 points of similarities with the shroud between many of these paintings. Uh, so that is the known history and then the possible ancient history of the shroud. Now we need to spend a few minutes here talking about the carbon-14 dating on the shroud. 1988. Uh, the shroud was carbon-14 dated uh, in three separate tests, supposedly to the 14th century origin, and many believe that this proves that the Shroud of Turin uh, is a forgery. Um, the problem is, uh, well, let me just give you some of, some of the problems with the carbon-14 dating. Number one, it's not always accurate. There are things, there's some, some formal terms, secular variation, the DeVries effect. They've got all kinds of different titles of different problems that carbon-14 dating creates, okay? Um, so, uh, number one, it's not always accurate. Number two, wrappings from ancient Egyptian burials have often been off by almost a thousand years, and they almost always err on the young side. They date the cloth 1,000 years younger than it really is, okay? So right off the bat, there's problems. Now, supposedly, carbon-14 dating is accurate plus or minus 200 years, okay? But at the Shroud of Turin, it's well known that there's many known contaminants on the Shroud. 
little little bits of paint, uh, pollen from all over the place. There's even patches on the cloud that have been stitched in because they've been destroyed by fire. So we don't even know if they dated, uh, dated a patch to the cloth rather than the cloth itself. Um, the chemical makeup of the cloth fibers may have been drastically changed by the formation of the image or by fires. We know that if you're going to radiocarbon date something, if there's a fire, it's going to throw the dating off because it's going to change the chemical, the, the chemical uh, makeup. Uh, you see, carbon dating assumes that everything occurred naturally, that there weren't you know, miracles and there weren't things even like fires. So even fire could throw it off. We don't know how the image was caused. If the image was caused by a miraculous heat or light scorch, that could have thrown it off as well. Uh, another point is the three labs violated the blind test rule. Uh, they had signed an agreement that they were not, they were going to do it in such a way that they would test several things and they would not know which cloth uh, was the shroud. When the tests were done, however, they chose cloths that looked nothing like the, the, the cloth of the shroud so that they knew exactly what they were testing. Um, by the way, a secret carbon-14 uh, test was conducted in, eight, in 1982. The Catholic Church kept that a secret until this one came out. And it resulted in dates. They dated only one strand, a single strand, and it gave dates of 1000 A.D. on one side and 200 A.D. on the opposite end. Carbon-14 is not the most reliable way to, to date. Uh, and, and then finally, there's two leading experts on carbon-14 dating. One gentleman named Gove. He's a, he, he, he believes the, the, the shroud is a fraud. And then there's Meekum, who believes the shroud is authentic. But they're both leading experts on carbon-14 dating. They both accuse the testers of cheating. The reason being is that they said they'd never heard of three separate dates all in the same century, carbon-14. I mean, you, you date something with carbon-14, if you do three different tests, you're going to get dates out here, dates over there, dates over there, then they've got to scratch their heads and try to figure out which one's the closest to it. But whenever you hear three dates coming out exactly the same, uh, experts on carbon-14 dating will tell you uh, these guys are playing with a loaded deck. Somebody's got an agenda. Uh, whatever the case, too, there's also a from Harvard University, a Ph.D. scholar, that uh, he argues uh, there's a way to do, to do a test to see if a cloth has been contaminated in any way and then filter in those factors with your carbon-14 dating. So what he's basically calling for, he says, hey, look, come on, you guys know you were cheating, let's date it fairly once and for all. And he claims you can come up with a, with a fair dating that would at least tell us um, what the image did, you know, let's face it, if, if when God raises a body from the dead, if it has some kind of effect on the cloth, some kind of radioactive effect on the cloth, if it bombards it with radioactive material, um, it's going to show a much younger date. And, uh, and, and until we figure out what caused the image on the, the, the cloth, carbon-14, it's probably not the best, best way to go. Um, but whatever the case, let's talk about, we'll close with this, some of the evidence for the antiquity and the genuineness of the shroud. We talked about the coins from Pilate's reign over the eyes. Uh, the pollen from Turkey and Israel, when we know the shroud has not 
uh, been in Turkey or Israel uh, since the 14th century. We mentioned already the problems with carbon-14 dating. Also, the weave and the type of the cloth is consistent with first century Palestine. We talked about the ancient art, possibly copied from the shroud, the work of Paul Vignon. Uh, we talked, uh, again, through the method of burial, the burial clothes is consistent. It's not only consistent with what Scripture states about Christ's burial, but it's also consistent with skeletons found in Palestine. Yohanan was a first century crucifixion victim. They, they, they know that because they couldn't get the nail out of his feet, one of his feet, and, uh, uh, but he was buried in a shroud the same way. It's also consistent with the Mishnah, an ancient Jewish writing, in Shabbat 23, verse 5. It's consistent with the Code of Jewish Laws, the Laws of Mourning, chapters 351 and 352. It's consistent with the Qumran, the Dead Sea area, the Qumran burial procedures. And uh, uh, so I, I don't know why Josh McDowell and Christians and non-Christians are arguing that it's not consistent with the ancient burial. All the evidence indicates uh, that it is. Uh, we've shown through Ian Wilson's work that, it, that the image of Edessa was probably uh, what became known as Veronica's Veil and the Mandalion, and, uh, and that they probably all are the shroud, though folded just around the face. Uh, again, we have to deal with the fact the body was in the state of rigor mortis. There was no decomposition on the body, so the body did not rot while in, the core, while in that cloth. If the body rotted while in that cloth, it would have left evidence of that. So uh, the body was in a state of rigor mortis, but no decomposition on the body. Yet, the blood stains and clots are not disturbed, so the body was not unwrapped. Somehow, the body just disappeared out of the cloth. It probably tells you, you know, and with, by the way, the cloth gets kind of hard with all the uh, perfumes that you put on it to bury somebody. So it's probably one of the reasons why John, when he entered the tomb, and he just saw the cloth, and he believed. Okay, and the face cloth was set aside, okay? So, I mean, but he just, it basically, uh, he may have seen it just looking like a cocoon. And it's like, how in the world did his body get out of there? I mean, John just saw the cloth, and he believed that the body wasn't stolen. He believed the resurrection had occurred. Um, but... Uh, Again, there's no sign of paint, dye, powder, or any other substance that could have caused the image. Uh, the image is three-dimensional. You don't get that with a painting. It's superficial. You don't get that with a painting. And it's uh, non-directional. You don't get that with a painting. And again, 1898, the Italian photographer named Pia discovered there were more details in the photographic negative of the shroud than in the uh, shroud itself. Um, you know, the question comes up, how could a forger have known all these details of crucifixion since crucifixion had not been done for centuries? By the way, they used to think there was no thumbs on the shroud, so they used to think that the artist made a mistake. Now what we found out, we started experimenting on corpses and crucifying corpses. If you put the nail through the palm of the hand, it doesn't support the weight of the body. Uh, a male body rips right through it, okay? You put the nails right at the bottom of the palm and right on the wrist where the two join, so you could still call it the hand as the, scriptures, as the scriptures do. You put it right in there, and it goes between two bones. It can support the entire weight of the body, but one thing it does, it locks the thumbs in place, so when the hand is faced like that, you won't see the thumbs. 
some guy in the 14th century knew this when they hadn't cruelty, what did he do? Go steal bodies and nail them up and say, oh, I can't put them through the palms, let me put them through the wrist. No, I, that just stretches the imagination a little bit. The hidden thumbs, the nails through the wrist. We, we did not know that they put nails through the wrist. We learned that from the shroud. Um, and uh, even the death by asphyxiation. Uh, uh, I, just, I just cannot see how a forger could have done that. And, you know, in fact, much of what we know today about crucifixion comes from a detailed medical and scientific study of the shroud. And nobody was doing crucifixions in the 14th century. And so in conclusion, I ask you the question, uh, is the shroud, is it the evidence of a divine miracle? Is it, a, is it an effect caused by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Uh, did God leave us, leave us with a photographic negative of the resurrection? When life re-entered the body of Christ, did somehow, did God bombard the corpse of Christ with light or heat to such an extent that uh, it left this image uh, on the cloth? Um, and the most likely hypothesis is that the body itself caused the image by some type of light or heat scorch. Uh, the effect was very detailed, but it was superficial. And it didn't burn through the cloth, and we cannot reproduce that today. Again, closest that we have ever come to something that comes, you know, even close to reproducing that is the bombs, the atomic bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the shadows of people that it left, wherever they were standing when those bombs landed. Uh, it, it left a shadow. And so you need something, it's possible that you need something with that kind of power, but in a twinkling of an eye to bring this about. And uh, I don't know what goes on when a body is resurrected, but I would imagine a whole lot is going on that we don't know about. Okay? Um, some would argue that the Shroud of Turin is human art. All the available scientific evidence goes against that, though. Others would say it's a human forgery. Uh, well, they would, those who hold it being human art would say it's a human forgery. Uh, some would say a demonic forgery. I don't know why Lucifer uh, many, uh, would do that. Many skeptics have been led to Christ, faith in Christ, because of the evidence of the Shroud of Turin. And believe God's in, if God wasn't in the business of giving evidence for the resurrection and for his miracles, he wouldn't have appeared to his disciples 40 days after he rose from the dead, before he ascended to heaven. Um, natural pro if, if there's a natural process that could cause the image on the shroud, uh, we know nothing of it. Modern science knows nothing of it. We can't even reproduce it ourselves today. So the question is, is the shroud of Turin the burial cloth of Christ? I myself have a lot more confidence that the shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Christ. Uh, I have more confidence in that than I do in carbon-14 dating. Uh, some people might disagree with me. Uh, the church might divide on this particular issue. But when everything is said and done, whether you agree with me or disagree with me, um, the Bible says that when you come to the tomb of Jesus, why in the world would you look for the living among the dead? Because our, the Word of God teaches, and we have reliable, sincere, reliable eyewitness testimony that the Lord Jesus, unlike any other founder of any other religion, the Lord Jesus did not stay dead. He conquered man's 
greatest enemy. He conquered death. And he conquered death for us. And he, pr he promises to raise us from the dead. He promises to give us eternal life if we would trust in him alone for salvation. I think the Shroud of Turin is evidence of that resurrection. Others would disagree. But Josh McDowell would disagree with me on this, is in total agreement. He wrote in his book, Evidence That Demands a, a Verdict, he's in total agreement with me on this, that if you want to go look at Confucius' grave, fine. If you want to go look at Buddha's grave, fine. Muhammad's grave, fine. Their, their skeletons are all in their tombs. But the Lord Jesus, if you visit his tomb, it's empty. Because the skeleton is not there. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior, and he's a risen Savior, and he has conquered death for you, and he conquered death for me. And so whether the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth to Christ, I think it is. If you don't, fine. Let's, let's have a cup of coffee, argue about it, but we'll praise Jesus the whole way. Because you're my brother, you're my sister. If you love Jesus, you know, if you're good enough for Jesus, if Jesus decided, hey, I'm going to die for you, I love you, I'm going to die for you, make you part of my kingdom. If you're good enough for Jesus, you're good enough for me. And if Jesus loves you, who am I not to love you? So we can disagree on things like this, but the fact of the matter is, our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has risen from the dead. And the only hope for mankind to defeat the grave is through the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer.